Hello and welcome back to Scottish Independence Podcast. And today we're bringing you another episode from our environmental and climate change series, Rising Clyde, with presenter Ian Bruce. COP27 in Sharm el-Sheikh has happened. We're left wondering if it's going to be possible to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees. But there are also reasons for optimism, for example, in the agreement of a new loss and damage agreement. And this episode, Ian is talking to Sabrina Fernandez, eco-socialist activist in Brazil, and she's speaking from Brazil. And the other guest is Nathan Thanke of the Fossil Fuel Non-Proliferation Treaty in Colombia, and Nathan is in Colombia. The episode is called Is There Life After COP? A Glimmer of Hope from Latin America. Hello and welcome to Rising Clyde. I'm Ian Bruce in Glasgow and today we have uh, two fascinating guests from Latin America to try and help us answer the question, is there life and indeed hope after COP27? As many of us expected, the UN climate talks in uh, Sharm el-Sheikh came a long way short of the kind of radical action, the stepped up action that's needed to keep global warming below 1.5 degrees Celsius. Um, Almost the only positive thing to come out of it was a tentative agreement, in part stimulated by the Scottish government, on loss and damage. That's to say rich countries paying poorer countries to help deal with the loss and damage that they've already suffered as a result of climate change, which they didn't cause. However, on the margins of the UN talks, there were possibly some signs of change. Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, Brazil's future leader, was given a rock star welcome when he appeared at the conference and said Brazil is back and that he promised to reverse the current destruction of the Amazon rainforest. Colombia's new radical president, Gustavo Petro, gave a blistering critique of the inaction of the international community and of the root, and indeed of the root causes of the climate crisis in unbridled consumerism of the capitalist economy. So our guests today are Sabrina Fernandez, who's joining us from Rio in Brazil. Sabrina is a well-known feminist and eco-socialist activist and academic. She's the founder and host of a very successful YouTube channel, Desi Onzi, or Thesis 11. And she also co-presented the COP26 Coalition's daily video briefing here in Glasgow last year. Nathan Thanke is joining us from Ibagué in Colombia. Nathan's long-standing veteran and thorn in the side of many cops, uh, and most recently he was in Sharm el-Sheikh. He was the coordinator of the global campaign to demand climate justice. He's now back in Colombia working with the Fossil Fuel Non-Proliferation Treaty. So thank you so much for joining us. I don't want to dwell very much on COP27, but Nathan, just first of all, this loss and damage agreement seemed like a good thing. Everyone was pleased it happened, but what does it really amount to? Yeah, it is It is actually a significant breakthrough um, and the credit for it does have to go to the group of developing countries 
Um, they're organizing a block, a negotiating block called the G77 plus China, which is a, over 134 uh, countries. And they really maintain a unified position on this issue, um, the likes of which we've not seen too frequently in the negotiations. Um, so this was, I mean, it was their unity that forced concession from the developed world um, that even last year seemed quite distant. Uh, we've been talking about loss and damage explicitly in the negotiations for over 10 years. Um, and it's been, you know, like pulling teeth to begin with. The developed countries didn't want to even have the discussion. They said loss and damage, this is a matter for adaptation. Uh, they didn't recognize it as a, you know, that there are limits to how we can adapt to climate change and that there are, um, you know, those are, those are upon us already. You know, how do you adapt to, you know, your territory being completely submerged or how do you adapt to 200% of your GDP um, being wiped off uh, in terms of damages in one night? Or how do you adapt to tens of thousands of people being displaced and, and killed? Those are, you know, not things you can adapt to. So we succeeded in 2015 in the Paris Agreement to have loss and damage recognized as a pillar, but we didn't ever set up any, any funding mechanism to, to actually deal with those impacts. So we were talking about loss and damage for a very long time. And it was really last year that the group of 77 upped the ante quite significantly um, in, in calling for a fund. They were fobbed off again with another round of talks and you know, let's keep discussing potential funding arrangements, but you know, in the distance, what can insurance do? That was a big push from particularly European that's how they envision fund funding for loss and damage is let insurance companies pay out. But who's going to insure, you know, if you're repeatedly hit by super storms and drought and flood, you're uninsurable. I, can I just interrupt you there a moment, Nathan, because there was a Scottish government event on loss and damage just before COP27, which I went to, which had a whole session on insurance. And I was completely confused because it seemed to be basically, you know, peasant farmers in the global south paying a monthly premium <laughs> so that somebody else would compensate them maybe when they got flooded, you know, which seems to have nothing to do with the concept of loss and damage. But maybe I'm missing something here. You know? No, I think your instincts are good, Ian. Um, it, it, it seems bizarre when you put it in simple terms to any reasonable person that, you know, the people most affected by climate change should pay huge multinationals to eventually just not really protect them. It's like, you know, nonsense. But unfortunately, that was one of the main, um, yeah, concepts of loss and damage funding. The G77 were not going to be sort of sold on that, though. And they came to Sharm el-Sheikh with a unified position. They had detailed proposals in writing that they submitted, and they just didn't budge on that. Um, they were subject to an attempted divide and conquer, uh, the, which is classic. The, the division points were to be around this question of vulnerability. So the Europeans said, okay, well, we'll go for a fund. But the conditions are that, that we want to broaden who pays into the fund. So it's not solely the responsibility of the historical polluters in the global north, but we also want to get India, China, and other quote unquote, you know, major or middle income uh, economies to pay in. 
which would have included the likes of Pakistan, who we just heard in the you know the demonstrations from from Edinburgh, uh, have suffered serious flooding recently, and so the absurdity was that Pakistan was going to be asked to pay into a global compensation fund uh, that only the smallest islands could access. This is the you know the division point. So we want more people to pay in, and we want fewer people to be able to access. So how was that bit resolved? How was that resolved in the final agreement? That was resolved by, I mean, it's a bit ambiguous. I think there's, there's you know, the, the questions around eligibility and around, um, you know, who, who the donor um, base would be are in some, you know, there's some room for interpretation there. I think China can probably expect to be continually pestered for funding. Um, but the Chinese government have been quite clear and they, they're willing to do south-south funding. They just want to make it clear that that's not a legal responsibility that they have. They're just doing that as a, you know, act of solidarity with, between countries of the global south. Um, but ultimately, you know, the, the unity of the G77 won out and the US, which was the real blocker uh, in, the, in the final hours, was forced to do a U-turn. Um, there's an interesting article recently by, by Kate Aronoff that explores a little bit of the, the background of that, but basically they didn't want to be the bad guys yet again. The US was kind of sick of being the, the villain of the climate talks, so they kind of had to um, take a, a step back and actually let this fund um, get agreed. Obviously now the fight that we have on our hands is to make sure it's properly set up that there's good governance of that fund um, and that it's resourced. Um, that's the main fight. And of course, we know as well that if we continue to burn fossil fuels uh, and avoid an equitable phase out of all fossil fuels, then there won't be a fund big enough um, to, to save us. We're going to continually make the problem worse. Um, so there's also that uh, fight that we have on our hands. Just, I, don't, I want to move on to, to, to some of the other stuff, but is there money? I mean, is, is it just a promise of money or is there some money actually there? Or, you know, what is the status of the funding of this? So you've always got to be really careful when, you know, you hear random pledges that come up, including the Scottish government, for anything to do with climate action. Often, oftentimes it's double counted, you know, it's money that was going for something else anyway. And then they said, let's slap a loss of damage sticker on this, or let's you know, put a climate sticker on this. Um, that's been long, long been the case for climate finance. It's usually been what we call a repackaged development aid, uh, quote unquote. Um, so you've got to be careful when, when analyzing the, the, the announcements that are made you know, seemingly at random. They're not made in the context of you know, um, legal uh, decisions. They're just announced from podiums or press releases. So always be very wary. Yeah, Sabrina. I mean, let's those scenes of Lula being sort of mobbed in Sharmel Sheikh, you know, and sort of being treated by the world's media like some kind of a savior. You know, I mean, <laughs> what did you make of all that? Well, it's kind of cathartic for Brazilians after four years of a Bolsonaro government that was intent on destroying or destroying everything, and if not. If they couldn't describe everything, they would just commodify 
what was left over of it, right? So the Bolsonaro strategy uh, dealing with the environment in Brazil was one uh, to deregulate, to defund, and in the end, to try to posit Brazil as something like the future of the green economy so they could get some of the benefits out of the carbon market and also greenwash agribusiness in Brazil, which was one of the main points coming out of the Ministry for the Environment. So with Lula coming back, we know that the issue of the Amazon was quite strong during the campaign. Uh, Lula made uh, very strong statements in terms of not only reducing deforestation, but trying to zero um, deforestation, working to actually uh, recuperate some of the Amazon. Obviously, some of the criticisms that uh, the issue in Brazil is not just the Amazon, all of the biomes are at risk. We've had big fires in Pantanal as well. Cerrado has been normalized as a biome that simply burns. When, when we know that agribusiness is involved in that as well. So we know that there's been a push uh, to make sure that um, Lula's agenda... Oh, sorry, sorry. So Cerrado is the sort of scrubland in the center of Brazil, right? Center Sometimes west, right? it's described as savanna-like, but it actually gets into patches of dense forest too. So um, uh, parts of it will look like like uh, like an open savanna, and parts of that is, uh, is more closed. But it's actually one of the areas of Brazil when you look into... Uh, uh, the Amazon, and then you have Pantanal, and you have Cerrado. This is where you have very strong agribusiness concentration. And it's also where Bolsonaro had got a lot of votes, a lot of votes. So we actually have data in terms of Bolsonaro voters and where you have uh, high patches of deforestation as well. And we know that these things are quite connected because it's connected with the um, Brazilian agrarian class. And Lula made uh, very good points during the campaign in terms of trying to uh, bring back Brazil into a scenario where Brazil is fighting climate change, when it's no longer uh, a pariah in the negotiations. So going to COP27 was a big display of force, especially because there were groups from Brazilian civil society present as well for a few years um, now, because Bolsonaro was so, so bad during COPs, uh, civil society uh, started uh, putting like some money to get people there to represent Brazil from another standpoint. So in the blue zone, in the pavilion, you see people in what they call like, the Brazilian Climate Action Hub uh, with NGOs, representatives from social movements, parliamentarians uh, trying to uh, resist. And this time was quite different because it wasn't just about denouncing the Bolsonaro government, but also announcing what could be done for the next years. And uh, Lula being present there, his speech actually echoed a lot in Brazil, like we're ushering in a new age. Um, but obviously right now we have the transition government sort of in place. So there are a lot of working groups trying to come up with proposals for when we start in January. And now is where when we're, we're seeing like some of the conflicts arise from this really broad coalition that helped to elect Lula. So obviously COP27 was a high point for us. Lula talking about bringing COP to Brazil, perhaps um, to an Amazonian city, who knows, like Belém or, or Manaus for, uh, for COP30. Uh, but uh, we're actually hoping that we can uh, sway the direction of the policies coming from the Lula government in a more radical perspective, rather than just you know, being better than Bolsonaro. We need to raise the bar a little higher too. Just, I mean, we'll come back to this a bit more, but are you, do you think that's possible to, to raise that bar and to, to 
to steer those policies in a more more radical direction? Well, it kind of depends on how the next year is going to be like. One of the main challenges that we have uh, concerns budget, right? Brazil is still operating under austerity rules. These were implemented under the Temer government after the coup against Yuma Rousseff. Uh, one of the main challenges, like Lula has talked about, um, removing the spending ceiling that we have. And obviously, you know, financial market uh, started um, speculating around this. There's been some pressure around this. So fiscal responsibility versus social responsibility. And now we're bringing in the concept of environmental responsibility to the table as well. So if we're going to have... Um, proper budget for the Minister for the Environment, proper budget for uh, climate change mitigation adaptation, and proper proper budget for even matters around energy transition around uh, Petrobras, the main national oil company in Brazil, we're going to need uh, uh, to pressure a little bit more. It's been even a concern, like one of the news that we have from the working group working on the environment and on energy is that Petrobras is proposing because the main uh, oil workers union from Petrobras is talking about energy transition nowadays, been talking about it uh, with a little bit more interest in the past two years. But last year, they released a letter from their Congress and they delivered it to Lula. Uh, with hopes that Lula would get elected. And the last point was the role of Petrobras in the energy transition. So changing the company from an oil company into an energy company. The terms of this still quite unclear to me because it looks like transition because there's a language around transition. But when you look into it, it kind of looks like the diversification rather than transition. So getting Petrobras to invest more in other areas of renewables. So sometimes it's like going like, total like total energies right that was oil and now it's investing in a bunch of different uh, areas in renewables so we need to apply pressure as well that if they're going to um, bring in budget for petrobras for other areas that this is attached to a phasing out of fossil fuels and not a normalization that we still need oil and we still need fossil gas and there's like a huge pressure to make sure they talk about fossil gas and non-natural gas because it's being very normalized here uh and phasing it out as we implement other things and this gets into a challenge in brazil as well because our energy matrix is considered very advanced in terms of renewables because we have a lot of hydropower in brazil so we are not burning coal and and diesel like like other places but at the same time um these means that uh usually governments and even like more progressive people in in the environmental institutions they think that we have more time but this is a country of over 200 million people and even though most of our emissions do come from uh change in land use meaning deforestation and the role of agribusiness here we do need to decarbonize the energy matrix one way or another um especially because we do need to take electricity for the first time to people in the country who don't have access to it so there's a matter of priorities here that require require us to think in terms of longer term planning and one of the the, the reasons we say that as well is because this also involves the transportation sector in brazil it's very car heavy truck heavy so we're talking about bringing in trains rail and so there are other matters around transition that also need to be discussed but they're kind of falling to the background because the priority obviously is halting deforestation and this conversation around petrobras but i i feel like we're still missing a more wholesome approach there's not a proper conversation in brazil on what would be like a brazilian green new deal that actually comes into the hegemonic 
um, hegemonic positions in terms of thinking on of every sector in a more coordinated plan. So we still have a lot to struggle for in the next years, even though we already know we're going to do better than we did uh, in the past four years with Bolsonaro. Yeah, we might come back to some of those points, like the question of public ownership, I think is, is maybe interesting in relation to Petrobras. But um, let's just have a look. I mean, Petro also, he didn't, he, he didn't make such a big splash, I don't think, on the international stage at COP27, but he did make a remarkably radical uh, speech, which echoed some of the things he said at the United Nations uh, a couple of months earlier, you know. Um, let, let's just have a little listen to a taste of that, and then I want to ask you about that, Nathan. The extinction that's ahead of us should press us into action now, with or without the permission of our governments, we have to act. I think the time has come for mobilization, mobilization of humanity. The market is not the principal mechanism we have to overcome the crisis. It's the market, capital accumulation, that has produced this in the first place. It will never be the answer to it. Thirdly, only public global planning, multilateral in nature, will allow us to shift towards a decarbonized economy. The UN should be really the focal point for such a planning. So those were just a couple of the points he made in his 10-point plan, sort of for international action on the climate crisis. Uh, tell us a bit more about what he's proposing at that level, Nathan. Yes, it was quite interesting to see Petro uh, rock up with this 10-point plan um, in, in Sharm el-Sheikh. Uh, as you mentioned, he didn't quite make the same splash as Lula did. Um, and, you know, there's potential, I think, for, uh, for the, you know, um, Pedro Marquez government to, you know, explore how they actually, um, I think, foster some of those international connections, how they can seek support from, uh, you know, international partners so that, you know, when Pedro does go and give a what is actually a very radical speech at the UN, it gets a bit more traction. Um, you know, you heard him say that because it is a radical speech. Um, he's using his platform as a head of state to say something that is essentially sacrilegious within the UN, which is that the market is not going to save us. It won't solve this crisis. In fact, it will make it worse. Um, and he's proposing what the, we essentially harking back to the, you know, the origins of the United Nations. He's saying we need multilateral public planning, in this case, to decarbonize the economy. And he said, actually, that COP27 will fail or has failed already because, you know, overcoming the climate crisis requires us to stop producing and consuming oil and coal. He didn't mention gas, which in Colombia, as much as in Brazil, is a problem. Um, and there's a narrative around you know, gas somehow being a bridge or somehow being exempt uh, when, in fact, it is. Uh, you know, a fossil fuel, just as a matter of fact. Um, the comments Petro made on the Amazon were interesting. He, you know, he didn't quite get it in that speech, but he did say that Colombia was going to put $200 million annually for 20 years towards saving the Amazon and issued an invitation to the rest of the world to help with that. Um, I'll, I'll speak to a little bit more into that in, in a second, but 
other points that I thought were interesting in his in the 10-point plan. He's talking about reforming the IMF and World Bank as well. Um, he, they want to transform debt uh, into investment in, in climate policies. So there's this kind of you know debt for climate um, thing going on. But I think it's you know to simplify it a bit, it's just that this debt should be cancelled simply, um, and that rather than servicing uh, you know these massive debts, uh, the countries in the global south could better use those resources you know, to deal with the climate crisis and to help with their energy transition. Let me, um, just, also, yeah. brief, let me just interrupt briefly, Nathan, because I, I remember Lula actually brought this up too, didn't he, Sabrina, uh, in Sharm el-Sheikh, he, he, this thing about reform in the UN as a way of addressing the climate crisis, which I thought was actually one of the more concrete and radical things that he said there, really. I mean, of course, you know, you know, it, didn't, it probably didn't get that much attention, but I was quite surprised by that. Was it surprising? Well, that's an old demand coming from Brazil, uh, so much that uh, even in the in the Bolsonaro government, that's still been a demand, not in, in relation to the climate crisis, but the diplomatic approach coming from Brazil, even under Bolsonaro, was that UN needs a reform of some sorts uh, involving perhaps the Security Council. Um, the different framings that ECOP27 Lula mentioned this in relation to, to the crisis, and uh, Lula mentioned this also in relation to these inequality of the resources made available. Like one of the things that they're pushing for is, is really make, making sure that uh, Brazil won't have to cut back on its development plans um, because of having to allocate all the resources themselves. So obviously this speaks to the funds around adaptation and mitigation for uh, developing countries. It speaks about loss and damage as well, but it also connects to this difficulty that we have in Brazil of making this more radical turn uh, away from this developmentalist approach. So the idea that Lula has been using a lot, it is around sustainable develop development in a way. He's talked about um, exploiting the wealth and the richness of the biodiversity of the Amazon. Like, what does that mean <laughs> exactly? Does that mean more commodities? Uh, it is further commodification of nature. So the approach is different from things that we've seen, for example, coming from speeches uh, from Morales in Bolivia in the past. And I think... Petro is like light years ahead of Lula in this discussion because Lula already made quite a historical speech coming from, you know, the, the PT in this position. So we know that there's been a lot of progress, but acknowledging the role of capitalism in this crisis, so like talking about the market, having more of this anti-capitalist tone to the conversation, this is lacking. In, in the Lula camp. Um, it is, I know that green capitalism is going to advance under this government, it is better than fossil fascism, better than fossil fascism, but it's running us into more contradictions and delaying further action as well. So there's a, I think there's quite a gap. Like I wish Petru maybe could have gotten a little bit more track and attention. I, I know it's because like, Brazilians also made a point to, you know, create a show around Lula, um, around it. So uh, Petru ended up being, uh, sort of like putting the sidelines because of this. Uh, but I never forget uh, this interview that Lula gave to Time Magazine earlier in the year, um, right before the campaign started. And Petro was like uh, still fighting for uh, for the second round in Colombia. And when asked about the 
uh, phasing out fossil fuels, Lula just treated Petro as overly idealistic because transition can't happen overnight. And I'm like, no shit, transition. It doesn't happen overnight. It requires planning. So I hope that once Lula comes in, uh, Lula and Petro can sit down and maybe, you know, um, we can learn a little bit more from this here and show that, well, there's actually a lot of good work being done on uh, phasing out fossil fuels. And it's just, it's not just something that we're throwing out there without any planning. It's not idealistic, it's very materialistic. And it's the basis for what Lula said in the end, that we need a healthy planet. There are no two planets, there's only one planet. So if we're going to um, make it happen, uh, we actually need to be more radical in our proposals. So um, I don't know what's going to happen within the next four years. The, um, the just let me stop you there a tiny bit because I want to come back to the next four yeah. years in a moment. Yeah, but Nathan, Nathan, let's just what exactly is you know I mean I mean Sabrina is absolutely right in terms of the discourse. You know, Petro comes over so much more radical than Lula does. But what is he really proposing in Colombia? You know, what 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 are his concrete plans? You know, and can he can he implement them? You know, <clears throat> yeah, <laughs> the harder part of the question. Um, I mean, so they were elected on a on a pledge to move towards a productive. Economy. I should say they actually. Yes, I'm, I'm sorry because I keep saying Petro, but actually, in many ways, the driving force behind some of this stuff on the on the especially on the environmental side is his vice president, isn't it? Do you know? Uh, Francia Marquez, who's the black woman who's been campaigning against mining and so on and so forth for many decades. Yeah, so yeah, sorry to, yeah. Need to make that clear. No, for sure. So Francia and Marquez comes from the movements really, and you can see that in the platform, the program for government. It adopts a lot of the language basically of, of, of racial justice and, and, and environmental justice movements. So they're saying we have this plan to change the, the way that the economy is oriented. It's not just for um, you know, profit. Uh, it's about respect for nature. It's about more inclusion. It's about uh, democratizing, uh, in particular, energy. Um, and so they, they made this like really radical promise to uh, put the defense of life above the interest of economic capital. And that gives you, you know, that's very broad. Um, to get a bit more specific, there's been a lot of talk around the energy transition in Colombia because. Some of the initial pledges that were made were were really you know profound they're proposing a plan yes planned and yes gradual not overnight but still a transition away and reduction of the production of fossil fuels um you know colombia like brazil its energy matrix also has a very healthy share of renewables largely due to hydro uh, mega hydro this government, you know, came in on the promise saying, like, we're actually not going to pursue that as much because we recognize that there are environmental and social harms involved, but we still want to pursue renewable energy. So they're talking about harnessing, in particular, the vast um, wind potential that the, the northeast uh, area of Colombia has, like Guajira, um, both for wind and solar. Um, they want to, um, you know, take a yeah, I mean, they want to start orienting the country towards that in the economy. They're proposing a new National Institute of Clean Energy, um, lots of training programs um, to help the energy transition. They, they're talking about an energy transition fund, which they're going to resource by revoking subsidies um, and taking royalties from extractive industries. They, they have the challenge in, in terms of the state um, oil company 
Ecopetrol, which also has to transform into, you know, an, an energy company, as Sabrina was saying, is the case in Brazil. Um, there has been a bit of, you know, on the pledge that they made, which was to grant no new licenses, which would have been really radical. Uh, there's been a little bit of wavering on that uh, and, and their commitment to that. So, you know, the pledge is about expansion, ending the expansion, like the non-proliferation of fossil fuels, but we're going to continue to produce what is already in the pipeline, maybe literally. Sabrina, I mean, just going back a bit to the, the Amazon question specifically, um, you know, Lula was talking about, and he talked about holding a future COP in the Amazon region. He talked about getting together all the different countries around the Amazon region. He talked about bringing together other forest nations, you know, major forest nations like the Democratic Republic of Congo and uh, Indonesia and so forth. I mean, is it fine words or do you think this is going to happen? I mean, is it, how much, I mean, there's a lot of resistance to doing this, I can imagine, in Brazil, right? But the Amazon, I think, is actually the one point where we have most consensus because of how bad it's gotten, uh, both in the international arena and also in Brazil. So when people acknowledge that there's a problem, an environmental problem in Brazil, people talk about the Amazon, people in other parts of the country, working class people. So there's another consensus around this, that the, the Amazon is going to be key but how you actually manage the situation is quite different. And I've been making the point that uh, all the conversations around the Amazon also involve this conversation around um, ministry for um, indigenous peoples in Brazil. And barring some of the more horrible proposals coming from the far right, like uh, what we call the Marco Temporal, which is this proposal that if an ind indigenous community could not assert their claim to a territory uh, by 1988, the time of the new constitution, then it's not really their territory. So it's about legalizing the displacement of indigenous communities and uh, throwing them off their land over these uh, long centuries of colonization in Brazil. So if we don't stop that, there's no point just saying that we're going to create new conservation units and we're going to uh, put more people to oversee this process or maybe create more regulation. We also need to deal with the matter of property of land and territory in Brazil. The guardians of the forest that have been doing this uh, job for a really long time, and also their safety. So the assassination of indigenous leaders, uh, the violence against other traditional communities like Quilombola communities in Brazil, this is absolutely tied to these matters of deforestation and illegal mining, uh, specifically uh, Garimpo, looking for uh, primarily gold in the Amazon Amazonian region. So these issues around property and defending the territory, they come hand in hand with the conversation around regulation and funding back into the conservation, the conservation entities in Brazil. This is important. The pressure from outside has helped. Like one of the people, uh, one of the, the things that people celebrated a lot was that after the victory, uh, Lula's victory, Norway said they're going to put money back into, you know, the Amazon fund. It's important. Um, but we also need to come this from like this other approach that doesn't that doesn't really depend from pressure from outside all the time or even from um, the um, 
acts and presence of international NGOs in Brazil. It needs to be approached uh, from communities as well in this non-commodified matter, because one of my big fears is that we're going to come in now with some of the structures that were left from the Bolsonaro government, that maybe the way to take care of the Amazon is just to create more carbon credits around it. And this is already a little normalized in the left, conversations around nature-based solutions, for example, uh, a lot of people don't even get into the details what that means. And then in the end, you have, you know, partnerships coming from, from outside talking about like the role of blockchain and Bitcoin in helping to preserve the Amazon. So we have to be quite careful there. Thanks. Nathan, uh, I hope we can hear you now. Um, I mean, Petro's plans for phasing out fossil fuels, for example, I mean, I can imagine there's going to be massive resistance to Petro's government on all sorts of levels, you know, given Colombia's history, very violent history, mainly much of that violence, most of that violence coming from the right. Is, I mean, can he get away with it? To take that question in terms of Brazil, Sabrina, I mean, Lula's made a big effort to sort of have very broad alliances, you know, and to sort of build alliances with section, you know, relatively conservative sections of the political establishment is that going to protect him from doing you know from from you know is it does that is that does that basically mean he's not going to be able to do anything anyway or does it mean he will actually be able to get away with doing more than if he didn't have that kind of alliance well that's the big ambiguity around lula and uh, i don't think it changes that much from his past governments the difference is that a lot of people got a taste uh in terms of how bad things were under bolsonaro so some sectors are willing to have more compromise uh so much because now uh we are dealing also with economic losses for these sectors so there are sectors uh from the brazilian elites uh, who are interested into making the lula government work because they lost under bolsonaro uh under uh, the lack of investment, uh, the lack of purchasing power uh, for the population. So I think there's a, a, some wiggle room there for negotiating. But one thing that we can mention right away, whereas uh, Petro has as his VP, Franca Marquez, who's a powerhouse, the Brazilian VP is Geraldo Alckmin, who comes from the traditional right in Brazil, um, who is uh, very keen on privatizations. And if Lula is actually going to promote a more state-centric approach in terms of uh, making sure that uh, certain companies uh, are maintained under state control, we already foresee some of these tensions right there. And obviously, Alckmin, the VP, is the one coordinating this transition uh, government team right now. So we're yet to see uh, how that's going to be approached. But I think that one of our challenges always in Brazil is how to approach agribusiness. And I think uh, here there is a point to be made. The um, candidate who had like the third uh, largest amount of votes, so we had Lula, then Bolsonaro, and then had Simone Tebet. Simone Tebet is a senator in Brazil. Uh, She kind of got this... um, uh, third wave vote in Brazil and sometimes like votes fr- uh, from women who didn't really trust Bolsonaro, but were sort of like anti-Lula, anti-PT. And Tebet uh, made a point to campaign for Lula. And we know that she was quite important for this win. Like her support uh, in these alliances was, uh, was, was key in the process. But Tebet comes from agribusiness. 
so she she is a big promoter of agribusiness and lula has talked about responsible agribusiness and sustainable agribusiness so there's a new wage of greenwashing coming in there that's why i made this point to talk about the issue around property because i i think it's all you know fine and dandy to talk about yes let's protect the amazon let's you know put money into conservation yes let's um talk about sustainable development in brazil but the level of compromises being made, they uh, they are a matter of who are the large land owners in Brazil, you know, who owns land and what they're doing with that. Because if we don't make a big change in those terms, we're still going to be pushing towards uh, this commodity-based system and this extractive society that we have in Brazil that's been a problem in terms of protecting nature from the beginning. So I, I'm not really sure whether Lula is going to have um, enough of a radical approach to actually confront some of these partners here. And um, this is where I think social movements need to come in to make sure that we need to raise the bar. We need to ask for more. Um, Brazil is not going to be a leader in, in climate change and just transition in this matter just by being back. In fact, I'm a big critic of this approach of like Brazil is back. Brazil is back from what? Right? Brazil is back from a situation that, yes, we were kind of like good guys in a certain sense, but we were still big emitters. We were still, uh, you know, big on deforestation, agribusiness, and always in the top five of violence against environmentalists <laughs> so brazil being back doesn't necessarily mean a good thing it's like very melancholic approach um that i think we just like brazil needs to set the bar uh higher and i think this has to do with latin american integration as well so this conversation with the other countries the amazon goes across nine states Right. Like so like it's nine other places. So nine other governments that we need to that we need to coordinate with. We know that the Amazon has been burning a lot in Bolivia this year. So there's a lot to be said in terms of a coordinated approach. That's why I think that this conversation around planning, multilateral approaches, treaties, accords, this is quite important for us because we, are, we won't be able to do that ourselves because of the contradictions within the governments, but also because you know, nature knows no borders. It's a basic matter. Nathan, let's hope we can hear you now. I just wanted to ask, you know, this question of alliances and whether they they would protect Lula or or hint or 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 constrain him. I mean, there's something is something similar happening with Petro. Has he had to reach out to kind of sectors that wouldn't normally be promoting that kind of an agenda at all? Well, I hope you can hear me. Um, it would be a shame if you can. I think we can. Super. Yeah. So the reason that Petro is in power is because he's brought together a very broad coalition, um, a very diverse coalition. He, he, you know, he, it's not only that he wouldn't win, he, in fact, did not win the presidency uh, when trying to uh, you know, get there more on his own. So that has been a success in terms of getting to uh, taking power. It will be the key to success in maintaining power and in implementing uh, any of the reforms that he wants to, to, to make. But it's also the success, the key to success um, at an international level. So exactly as Sabrina was saying, you know, nature knows no boundaries. The issues that we're dealing with here, both in terms of saving the Amazon um, and also in terms of transitioning economies 
and in particular the energy transition, require international partnerships. Colombia is digging up fossil fuels for export. It's 20 to 25% of GDP. Um, so like government revenue for the next few years, which they need more of because there's massive inflation here as well, uh, is reliant on fossil fuels. So you need to go to the international community to you know, work with them to not do that. And I think a simple approach, as we saw with Ecuador and the Yasuni initiative you know, about a decade ago, just simply saying, we have these fossil fuels, we don't want to burn them, somebody pay us, that is not enough. You need to build power to do that. You need to build a coalition. And it's been interesting to see Colombia make um, baby steps, uh, even at the UN, towards that. One of the um, one of the successes I thought uh, of the Colombian government, not necessarily Petro, he had already gone home, but you know his ministers and negotiators was that they began entering into dialogues not just with other Latin American countries, which you know they have also done around the Amazon, and you know we're talking about potentially an Amazon summit early next year, COP30 being a Latin American COP, but they began entering into you know more low key dialogues with ambitious countries like Tuvalu, like uh, Vanuatu, um, around the idea of international cooperation for fossil fuel phase out. So these are countries that have already made an endorsement for a fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty. Um, Colombia is not there yet, but they're in and around the conversation. And so seeing where they take that will be interesting. Um, and Colombia has also you know, got a role to play so can I just uh, ask you that? Is that is that does the Beyond Oil and Gas Alliance is that a part exactly. of that, or is that something separate? Uh, it's something separate. You could think of the you know the, the proposed fossil fuel treaty as being like a, a framework treaty, sort of like the Paris Agreement, and then the Beyond Oil and Gas Alliance being like a high ambition set of countries that you know would, would maybe drive towards uh, such a such a treaty. Um, so there is a relation, but they are distinct. What Colombia has also done, you know, as well as you know, it should join the Beyond Oil and Gas Alliance, it should come out and call for a treaty and advance that at the international stage because that is for its benefit. Um, that's the only way it's going to be able to, to do a transition is if it is supported to do that transition. Otherwise, forget about it. They've also, you know, they did play a role at the COP in pushing language, you know, in the so-called cover decision for the COP27 around equitable phase-out of fossil fuels. And they were, you know, willing to put their heads above the parapet a little bit, and, and, and you know, they could have just slinked away, but they didn't. They said, "No, we're going to join some of these more ambitious countries, and we're going to call for it on the floor. We're going to use our opportunities." Um, so they need to kind of build on that alliance. Is essentially my point at the international arena, both for energy uh, phase out and for the Amazon um, salvation. So that, we're kind of almost completely out of time here, but just to Quick comment from both of you. I mean, where does this go? I mean, are we seeing some kind of a new coalition on an international level? We're inside the COP and inside those kinds of forums. And how does that connect with the kind of coalitions, you know, that the movements have been building outside? Uh, maybe Sabrina, do you want to go first? Well, I think the tentative agreement on loss and damage already points that something happened 
um, that it's not enough to actually say that, no, yes, we are concerned, there are inequalities around climate change, but no, now people, not only, not only were the countries saying you pay up, but we need this in writing and we are not going to accept these voluntary pledges that you just throw around, around these like the highlights during COP and then people forget about it. Obviously there's a lot more work to be done this, but the situation coming from, like, from a global south, global north divide is already quite important. Uh, and there are initiatives like the fossil fuel non-proliferation uh, treaty and conversations around um, diplomatic integration and other courts that even go through talking about, you know, TRIPS waivers around WTO for uh, for green patents in, in terms of like technological transfer, uh, conversations around uh, technological partnerships and collaborations across universities in different regions so you can have this kind of transfer as well. I think that this is very important. Um, what I think that we're still missing is more of a coordination around, for example, sacrifice zones, because one of the main issues that we have around energy transition is this big demand for minerals that we know is going to put a lot of pressure, uh, particularly in places in the global south, where you have lax regulation and wide availability for these minerals. So we need the level of coordination uh, that is not just about, you know, global south countries coming together and applying pressure, but also saying, well, look at your demand for resources in the global north as well. You need to transition very fast, but in this needs to accompany our investment in transition in our infrastructure as well, so we can allocate these minerals uh, in a more um, equitable manner. Because yes, it's all nice for us to talk about, yes, let's invest in offshore wind. So Petrobras in Brazil is uh, making a proposal that um, besides um, you know, the level of investment and keeping the company national. So fighting privatization. Yes, we will invest in green hydrogen. We're going to invest in carbon capture and off offshore wind. But to talk about that, this involves infrastructure. This involves mining. So and these patterns of extractivism that we already see in the re region, whereas in other places in the global north, it involves the same thing. So these allocation of resources at the base of the energy transition, this needs to come to the table as well. Otherwise, we're going to be normalizing uh, sacrifice zones now for green purposes. So like this new, like green extractivism with green sacrifice zones and a new level of greenwashing and justification uh, for the destruction of entire communities, communities going without water and um, uh, in ecosystems being destroyed in the name of the transition. So this is a, uh, an element of the conversation that I still feel is kind of missing and we need to push uh, uh, for this, not only in terms of COP28 next year, but in this ongoing conversation. So we're not always so dependent on the UNFCCC um, calendar, right? That sounds like a whole massive and really, really important topic for another conversation, you know, about the sacrifice zones and, you know, green extractivism and so on and so forth. Yeah, but um, yeah, Nathan, some final thoughts. I mean, you know, where what are these, are we seeing something new, some coalitions inside, outside, connections? I think we are, and I think they're badly needed, right? You know, it's, it's all well and good to have countries that are particularly vulnerable to climate change, your small islands, your low-lying states, etc., talking about, you know, more ambitious climate action, talking about phasing out fossil fuels, in an equitable and, and you know, science-led way. Um, but unless you start to bring some of the producers into that alliance, 
it's kind of, you know, it's just the moral high ground. It's not actually any political leverage. So I think the fact that countries like Colombia, which is not, you know, a major, major fossil fuel producer, but it is pretty significant, um, you know, that they are now coming into the, into the conversation is very interesting. And that they're coming into the conversation saying, yeah, we want to phase out all of our fossil fuels. Like that is such a massive opportunity, both at the level of states and in terms of, you know, how they relate to each other and the things that they can do in terms of diplomacy and, um, you know, policy frameworks, both inside and outside the NFCCC, because I do think what we've seen at COP27 is the, the clear limitations for that framework convention um, and the need for other, you know, policy frameworks. Um, but also at the level of movements, I think how social movements are, are beginning to um, deepen their understanding and the sets of demands around this transition is really important. Like, look, the transition is coming one way or another. It's either going to be ordered and managed or it's going to be chaotic. It's either going to be just or it's going to expound, you know, and make even worse the existing injustices. So we've got to adapt for that. Like, it's no longer about trying to insist that climate change is a real threat and needs to be dealt with. It's, it's happening already, and the most powerful people in the world are aware of that, and they're adjusting towards that. So we've got to go be a bit beyond that, and I think about how do we want the transition to be governed, and how do we want to organize ourselves for that coming transition, as well as for the coming impacts, which are going to be very severe. So new alliances are, are definitely needed. Fascinating, fascinating discussion. Uh, we are, I'm afraid, out of time. But that's, you know, so much more that we need to talk about. Uh, so maybe on another occasion. Uh, Nathan, thank you in Colombia and Sabrina Fernandez in Brazil. Thank you so much for joining us. And uh, until the next time, that's the end of this episode of Rising Clyde. Bye bye. <laughs>